We started into a series on Job last week, and last week was pretty light. Today's going to be a bit heavier. So for some reason, I started telling medical stories about my own life last week, and I will start with one this week. Again, how many people have ever had their wisdom teeth taken out? Um, I don't know what the policy is. If, if they stay in, are you wiser? Or if they're removed, are you wiser? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but when I was about, what would I have been? Maybe 19 or 20, it came time to have my wisdom teeth taken out. So they did all the scans, x-rays, and then I went in and... Um, all I remember is I was talking to the dental surgeon, and they'd done like a IV kind of thing, I think, to put me under. And I just remember talking to him, and then I was just out. And I start to come to again, and obviously they'd taken the teeth out and all of that. But I'm a little bit groggy, and they say that you're not supposed to drive and all that stuff. So my mom was picking me up um, to get me home and get me looked after and sorted. And the, the dental surgeon starts talking and going through, okay, here's things that you shouldn't do for whatever it was, two weeks. You shouldn't drink out of a straw. Um, you shouldn't have hard foods. Like imagine eating a Dorito and then it turns the wrong way. Oh, horrible, horrible. So she's going through all this stuff. And then, and then uh, the dental surgeon just says, uh, does Eric smoke? And my mom goes, no, he doesn't smoke at all. And he said, good. And in my groggy space, I started going, mom, mom, where are my smokes? I need my smokes, mom. Give me my smokes. And the dental surgeon's going, so I thought you said he doesn't smoke. And my mom's like, no, he doesn't smoke. Mom, I need my smokes. And she's like, that'll, that'll do. Just like, um, calm down. And it was one of those moments I think my mom was very proud of me for the restraint that I showed in dealing with the surgeon and... Um, yeah, so at random points, I just think about that story and remind my mom, and she's very thankful for that. Okay, we're going to hop into Job. Last week, we talked and really focused on just one chapter, chapter one of Job, and we were looking at who Job was as a person. There's lots of things that we jump to when we think of the book of Job, but last week, we really just went through a few of those things that make him a man of God. He wasn't just a guy that kind of suffered for a while. He was a very godly man. So this week, we're going to hop in by looking at kind of the villain in the story. So to summarize a little bit of what happened that we talked on last week in, in the Scripture, in chapter 1, you first learn about Job, what type of person he was, and then towards the end, you see an exchange where the devil is in the courts of God. God says, what have you been doing? He said, I've been uh, just kind of traveling around the earth, seeing what's happening. And God says, hey, have you seen, have you seen Job? Proud of this guy. He's amazing. Fears God, does what's right, complete integrity. And the devil says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone, if you bless them like you bless Job, would follow you. So God allows the devil to test Job, and he says, listen, you can do whatever you need to do, but don't touch him physically and don't kill him. So what ends up happening is uh, Job's at a in his tent, and all these messengers start showing up, going, bad news. Sabean raiders have come. They stole all your camels and your donkeys, and they killed all of those servants. While that messenger's still delivering a word, another guy comes. Bad news. Fire from heaven came down. All of your sheep and shepherds are dead. 
still others come. Your camels, they're all gone. Fourth messenger comes, says, listen, uh, I, I hate to tell you, but all of your kids are dead. So a bad day for Job. And at the end of that section, he tears his robes, shaves his head, utters a prayer to God, and the last verse of chapter 1 says, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Then we come to chapter 2, and we'll pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, one day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. Do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. We focused on Job last week. This week, we're going to talk about Satan, the accuser. And this is naturally going to lead us into a discussion about suffering. So this will be nice and light, and then you can go to Swish LA for lunch. So what do we learn about Satan from this passage. We learn that he's called the accuser. That's the title that was given to Satan. Satan, the accuser, comes. And everything he says in this passage is either an accusation about Job or it's an accusation about God. Everything. You can literally just hear it on every sentence. He's just kind of undercutting everything. John 8:44, we know that Satan is called the father of lies, and that's what we see here. In many ways, the, the way that he talks to God about Job is that it, it's so similar to how when he's tempting Jesus, he kind of mixes half-truths with things. Things sound almost logical, but it's always got a light twist on it. Nothing comes that comes out of his mouth will ever, ever be truthful. So just consider this for a sec. If this is how Satan spoke to Job and to God about Job, 
wouldn't it make sense that it's the same kind of voice that he brings when he talks to you? The devil will come and he'll go, really? Can we really trust God, do you think? Well, this area of sin, it can't be that bad, can it? Uh, I know what God said, but really? You really think so? Every word he speaks is a lie, and, and it's the same today as it was in Job's time. Next thing we see, he wants to destroy and break relationship. Everything he says here is designed to manipulate, divide, and drive a wedge between God and Job. Again, this is part of who he is. He hates anything that's solid, stable, or secure. Oh, yeah, sure, Job will follow you, but take away his health and watch what happens. You guys don't have a strong relationship. This isn't going to last. You might as well quit right now. Job's going to give up. Since the beginning of, of creation, you see it in the, the earliest chapters of Genesis, the devil's been hell-bent on destroying the relationship between God and his people. It's like number one concern. Still the same today. He also believes that Job's relationship with God is completely conditional. Yeah, Job, Job only fears you, only follows you because of what you do for him. Remove your blessing. He'll, it, this whole thing is so flimsy. It's a house of cards, and it'll crumble if you pull one of your blessings away from Job's life. Claims everything is, is completely conditional. Job's only in it for what he gets from you. He's only in it when, when times are good. When times are bad, he'll check out faster than anyone. The other thing you notice, though, is that the devil is, I think we give him too much credit, right? In this story, you'd see it's all of the, the court in God's throne room, all of these different, I'm sure there's the archangel Michael, all of these different angels that we read about, all the weird cherubim probably bombing around up there, too. And then you just see this little dirty Satan kind of lurching. And God's like, hey, little rat down there. What have you been up to? I've been going around the earth like watching things. C.S. Lewis had an interesting quote where he said, yeah, the, the devil is real, but he's still God's devil. It's not 50-50 where he comes in and he's like, all right, God, move over a bit. The big boy is here. No, he's this little pathetic thing. And God goes, all right, what have you been up to? And everything he gets to do is just because God goes, I suppose. He's got really no power in this story at all outside of what God allowed. So when we think about the devil, let's not give him more credit than we should. He's terrible. He's a loser. He's pathetic. He's weak. He's crafty. He's a liar. But he's not powerful. Doesn't hold a candle to God. Last thing to note here is that he inflicted suffering on Job. I can't even imagine what Job went through here. All, all of his kids gone. All the livestock that would have represented so much of his wealth. And those are like the practical things, the tangible things that he loses. But as you read on, you find that he's reflecting on life going, I used to be a person of influence. People used to come to me and ask for my input on things. And, it's like beyond just the physical stuff, something got just 
busted in him, massively confused and lost. Suffering inflicted on Job by the devil. So out of this section again, so many questions start to come to mind. We did a class on reading the Bible a few months back, and in the first session we just talked about the value of questions as you're reading Scripture. If you don't understand something, just start writing down everything that you have questions about. And just make a list of questions. And you might find that you don't get answers to all of them right away. But good questions begin to lead to more questions and get you thinking about Scripture differently. It engages your mind differently. So there's lots of questions that we can go to here, but maybe one of the biggest ones is how could God allow this to happen? God allowed Job to be tested. He allowed it. But only with in the parameters that he'd given. So at this point, everyone's like, okay, lay that perfect, well-rounded, crafted answer that we'll all agree with and be comfortable with out. Simplify everything so that we know exactly what the nature of this whole book is. And people theorize on it. But even as you continue to read through the book, God never actually extrapolates on the exact reason why he allowed this. We can theorize a few things, but I don't have a perfect answer for you on why God allowed this to happen. But there's two things that I do know that we find as we read Job. The first is that Job didn't suffer because he had done anything wrong. He didn't suffer because he'd done anything wrong. And if we're honest, most of it happened because he'd done a whole lot of things right. Right? Job's suffering wasn't a punishment from God. God was proud of Job and actually said, Hey, little Satan, seen Job? Pretty good. And actually drew Satan's attention to Job. From here, we can speculate a whole bunch of further questions. Did, did God know that Job would make it through? What was the nature actually at the core of the testing? Was it actually to test Job's motives for fearing God? Was it simply to prove the devil wrong? Is this whole exchange included in the book for our benefit to learn from this story and this exchange and what happened? So many more questions than we have time to tackle. But we know that Job didn't suffer because he'd done anything wrong. Second thing that we do know is that we read about here is just purely statistically more the exception than the norm. And this is important to remember because it's easy to read the Bible and go, or you're in a spot of suffering and go, I'm Job. Clearly, I've been turned over to the devil. But consider, consider this. In, in all of Scripture, like, how many other people could you actually go, well, the devil actually wants to test you. You, you can go to uh, Peter. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. It hints at something similar to this whole exchange we see in Job, but we don't get near the detail. Now, we do know that Peter then denies Christ three times. 
and returns to Jesus and ends up being a, a rock and a pillar on which the church is built. There's also a, a, a verse in Acts 9 where God speaks over Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, and he says, uh, I'll show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And then we do know that Paul's journey, one of the writers of the New Testament wrote really more than anyone that we find in the New Testament. His life was far from easy. It was definitely not free from pain or suffering. And you could start going through, and there's things that are similar, different. But what we read about here, this isn't like, oh, everyone's going to go through it. Kind of an exception, and by no means the norm. Now, here's what's interesting when we talk about people who suffered in the Bible. There's also other people who suffered directly from the hand of God. Pharaoh and a whole bunch of the Egyptians lost their firstborn sons because they were oppressing God's people. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, God broke that guy because he opposed God so obstinately. But we don't really seem to mind if those guys suffered, right? They're bad. Probably had it coming. Maybe we think they deserved it. So what's interesting to note is that depending on who's suffering and our perspective on that suffering will determine what we think about that area of suffering. Isn't that interesting? Look at Job's story. Terrible. How could God allow this? Pharaoh? Ah, probably should have killed more people. Right? That's just if I'm being honest. But we also see suffering throughout Scripture and throughout history where it's not tied directly to the devil wants to or the hand of God on people. So scholars narrow down these sources of, of suffering generally down to three areas. So one of these areas they call the fallen world. So this is all of the things that happened as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And what we see is the symptoms of this paradise lost in our daily world, right? You'll remember in that story, God said things like, they've been living in this garden that's just abounding and fruitful. And then God's like, actually, now the ground's going to be hard to work. Sickness started to come in. Because of, because of sin, there's shame. And there's all these things that come as a result of the fallen world. Uh, this isn't, I'm not saying this is theological. My opinion, mosquitoes were probably like a joy before Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, this summer they've been so bad that my legs look like they had boils on them at one point. But in this kind of category of the fallen world, it's where we'd find things like sickness, natural disasters, and all of those kind of things. And, and like, there's that wretched hailstorm, was it two summers ago? It didn't matter if you were a Christian, a non-Christian, an atheist, or any other religious belief, every house got smoked right? And I don't think it was the devil going, yep, this person, I want to test them, and let's test their neighbor. Actually, let's test this whole uh, community right here. Natural disasters, sickness, things like that. Another area that they identify is sinful lifestyles and systems. So this is where we see the fruit of sin 
bearing a harvest in our world. This is suffering that we can inflict on ourselves or on others. So I know that when I sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the ultimate outcome for all sin. And we start to see that, right? We can't sow apple seeds and end up with carrots. If we sow in sin, we begin to reap sin and the fruit of sin. So in this category, you'd see things like, well, even just as basic as unhealthy lifestyles, right? It's not a mystery if if I go on like a pure donut diet and only eat donuts, I'm probably going to get some health issues. Not a healthy decision. And that's an easy one. But we also end up with things like abuse, the byproduct of sin, things like war, and even systems that oppress people, crush people. All of this is is in this kind of category. It's an... uh, uh, a biblical scholar named Eric Mason, good name, and he said, God can redeem the situation, but sometimes the Lord doesn't remove all of the consequences. God will forgive you, but if you're burning every bridge along the way, odds are good you're going to have some stuff to clean up here. He can redeem it, There's going to be some collateral. And you see this all through our world. We don't even need to think hard about where we see this manifest. The last area is spiritual warfare. So not every type of suffering is directly linked to the devil, but this is where you'd see something where it's like, yep, satanic attack. So you hear a lot of pastors say, If they go away on, like, a ministry trip, then, like, all their kids get sick and, like, there's a flood at their house and their car breaks down and everything that could possibly go wrong happens. It doesn't make sense, but that's an example of a direct spiritual attack. I was just talking with Pastor Cheryl a few weeks back, and she referenced something that Olivia had brought up during a prayer time where sometimes there's these things that are happening, and it's this annoying distraction, and It's pulling you out, and you just need to rebuke that stuff because it's probably just a satanic attack. And she told me a story about how she did that, and literally everything just shifted in one moment. We need to be conscious of this. Like, this is what Job went through here. It was a spiritual attack on him, flat out. And I think in the middle of this, it's sometimes easy for us to wait everything to the devil. Oh, devil's doing it again. Mm, sometimes, most of the suffering I personally go through, I'm well aware that I'm the cause and the root of most of that suffering. Right? So what's interesting in Job's story is that we find examples of all these and how the suffering actually came about. He lost sheep and his children to fire and wind. That would be the fallen world. And when you hear like fire from heaven in a case like this, usually they equate it to something like lightning strike. These would be like natural occurring things that happened. Tent fell over and his children are dead. He lost his oxen and camels to attacks by raiders. These would be literally people in killing and stealing. This is where you see that sinful system at work. And then the attack on his health was literally just straight the devil. Spiritual warfare. But regardless of the source, the devil celebrates all of it. He loves it when anyone suffers. He couldn't be happier to see people suffer. John 10.10 tells us that his nature is to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And he celebrates all of that. He loves it. Now, the reality is that we might not like that there's suffering that we read about in Scripture or we look around or if you're brave, you read a newspaper. But there's suffering in our world, right? We can uh, bury our heads in the sand and avoid it, but we can't deny it simply because we don't like it. So just consider a few of the verses that we find in Scripture relating to suffering. Maybe ponder why they might be included in the Bible. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Fascinating verse. Don't be surprised that there's trials in your life. So why is that included? Are we usually surprised when we experience trials and we go, what? This can't be happening. Not to me. Romans 8, 35 and 37. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Why remind us of the goodness of God and that overwhelming victory is ours if we're not going to face any of the things that are listed? Psalm 23, 4. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Notice that it doesn't say, if I walk. It says, when I walk. It's going to happen. If would be much more pleasant. If, if you want to be a heretic and write the comfort translation of the Bible and you just remove everything that doesn't make you feel good. It'd be a shorter book, and you'd easily get through it in a year. But there's so many verses that talk about both things like overcoming, but also God being close to us in the middle of suffering. And they wouldn't be in this book if we weren't going to face them. We'd be crazy to believe that our lives are just like cotton candy and perfume and flowers every day. There will be trouble and there's going to be some suffering. So a few things that we can learn just from Job in how we deal with suffering. What can we learn? The first thing is this. Job didn't remain silent in his suffering. He didn't remain silent in his suffering. He was in no way quiet about it. He vocalized it, and he didn't also deny it or avoid it. For me, always the interesting thing when you're at like a grocery store till, I've said this before, but you're like, I always make a point of asking the cashier, like, how are you doing? today. They go, I'm fine. And I'm like, yeah, for sure. You're doing great. But that's not how Job was with God. It's not how he was with his friends either. He said, listen, this is grim. I'm in a rough spot. If you continue to read on into chapter 3, this is what you hear. Job 3.1. Let the day of my birth be erased, and, and the night I was conceived. Get rid of both. I'm only reading a handful. The whole chapter is just dark. Like, some of the darkest you'll read anywhere in the Bible is Job 3. Job 3.11, why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? I wish we had Club J because that's almost like way too heavy to read with kids in the room. But they're eating Ritz crackers, so I think we're good. 
So we read these statements from Job. Would we have liked him to just be man of faith? No, I'm fine. Yeah, all my kids are dead, but I'm doing great. Right? Do we, do we want a tamer version, a less honest version of Job? I, I said it last week, but Job was just, he was a real dude, and this was awful. I can't fathom how awful. But can I just say, I'm so glad that this is included in the scriptures. It is dark, dark, dark. But here's something very interesting. Did you know that one-third of the Psalms, you know, the beautiful ones, he leads me by peaceful streams, open up ancient doors, let the king of glory in. One-third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. One-third are people going, God, please, or God, why, or God, help. One-third of the Psalms are people pouring out their heart to God in times of sadness, grief, loss, and suffering. I've been reading a book called The Silence of Abraham, and the author, J. Richard Middleton. I do love how much smarter people sound when they put a first initial before the name, like J. Richard Middleton. You couldn't have just gone with Richard Middleton, but he sounds way smarter. But he says this, prayers of lament are radical acts of faith and hope because they refuse, even in the midst of suffering, to give up on God. Job's prayer here, I wish I'd just been dead from the start. But who's he talking to? God. The prayer is still directed to God. Got honest prayer from Job. And when we're at the bottom, the worst thing we can do is bottle it up and go, I'm not talking to God. Forget it. I don't want to hear from him. Get in there and get messy. God's a big boy. He's not scared of your harshest argument. He's not scared of your questions. And when you go to God at the bottom, an odd thing can happen where it might not happen right away, but God's going to respond. There's too many promises in his word about where he is when people are at the bottom. He's close to who? Brokenhearted. Do we go to God? And honestly seek him. My journal is basically a journal of lament. I think I'm naturally melancholic, and I never really know what that word means, but people have told me that. Um, but my journal, I wouldn't let people read it, not because of the secrets, like Dear Diary. Not because of any of that, but because it's just way too raw and uh, way too honest and there's some words in there that I definitely wouldn't say on a live stream. But it's honest. And it's real. And I can track my struggle and my journey with God, not just from the high points, but also in those low. So we come to God and we aren't silent in a time of suffering. Next thing, he didn't quit or give up in the middle of his suffering. So we don't actually know how long his suffering was. We don't, have a, we don't have an exact timeline. We know that there's a gap between when he lost his kids and all of his possessions. Then we find that there's another assembly of the heavenly court. We don't know the timeline. Then that's when his health is hit. In the book of Job, we know that the skin condition lasted at least a week. Because as we'll read about next week, his friends come and sit quietly with him for one week. 
But then there's like close to 35 chapters of just people talking and debating. How many have friends that are long-winded? Job's friends are, <laughs> well, I think somebody just thinks I'm long-winded by raising their hand there. That's amazing. But his friends just start talking, and it just goes on and on. So we don't know exactly how long it was. But the one thing that we don't know is that, or that we do know is that Job didn't give up in the middle of it. And we also know that there was an end to the struggle. There was a time at the end of Job where there's a redeeming and a restoring. But listen to this. Job 2, verse 9 and 10. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. I can't say I ever met this woman, but she sounds nice. I think we read about her in Proverbs 31. But even with that level of encouragement from his wife, Job didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. And I do need to remind you that, especially if you feel like you're going through a period of suffering, for those of us in Christ, all of this, all of it, temporary. Temporary. We don't talk much about heaven these days, but I think we need to. My hope isn't just in earthly things. I got a hope way beyond this and what I'm seeing. And I can't forget that because it's so easy for me to get real earthly and just go, None of God's promises are true. Look at my life. And he goes, uh, did you guys all forget about heaven? Have we all forgotten about eternal rewards and mansions and a lot of things that are referenced? The other thing I think in the middle of the struggle, and um, this has been very much my last couple of months for a number of reasons have been, again, some of the most testing times for me of just feeling stretched and almost breaking point in a number of different areas all at once. And it's when I have to remind myself that God's never failed me, never failed me. He's a firm foundation. He is who he says he is. He's not going to change tomorrow. He hasn't changed because of what I'm going through. And I hold on to him, and I make a decision in myself that I'm not going to quit somewhere in the middle, but I'm going to hold on, and he's walking me through a valley of death. We're not camping there. He doesn't say, even though I have made a permanent residence in the valley of the shadow of death. No, we're journeying through it, and you don't quit in the middle. And there's tons of more scripture we could give on what it looks like to finish well. So if you find yourself in that valley, keep going today. Like, keep going. Make a decision. You might feel like you're dragging yourself and just clawing your way through. But make a decision that no matter what, you're not going to quit. Last thing is this. And Moira, maybe you can come up. Job didn't let his suffering corrupt his heart. So you got to get this part of this. Job didn't understand why he was suffering. We're going to get into this the last two weeks. A lot more. We're only like two, two chapters in. 42 books, four weeks. We've got some work to do coming up. But Job didn't understand why he was suffering. His friends came to share their wisdom. If you've been reading through the book, a lot of it sounds pretty good. 
maybe even plausible. All the while, Job's crying out to God for an answer. And that answer took a long time to get to him. But, Job 1.22, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. That's tough. Tough to do. One of the hardest things to do is to keep your heart soft. Life has a brutal way of kicking at your heart, stomping and doing everything it can to break your heart so that it grows this crust and it gets hard. The hardest thing to do is to keep a soft heart, especially when you're going through suffering. And we find scriptures that we really love and love to quote. Let me read you a couple of them. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. I love this verse. A love that's too great to understand fully. Philippians 4, 7. You will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. I love that verse. That got me through most of COVID lockdown. Well, it got me through all of it. But there are things like love or peace, good things about God that it, it literally tells us that we won't understand it all and we're totally okay with. I don't need to understand love that it tells me I won't understand, but it says I can experience it. I don't understand peace that blows my mind that I can't comprehend, but I've experienced that too. And when God pours out blessing on our lives, we rarely start to go, Hold on here. Is this merited? God, should I really be receiving this much blessing? I'm going to need some answers before you bless me anymore. Right? Said no one ever. But when it comes to something like suffering, even in the smallest amount, we often feel like we have a right to understand all of it and every question needs to be answered. Proverbs 139.23 and Proverbs 4.23 tell us to search our heart. Actually, the Psalms 1 tells us to allow God to search our heart. And Proverbs 4.23 tells us to guard our hearts. We're, we're in the middle of a time of suffering. This is especially true for us. God, search my heart. Keep it soft. Is there any wicked way in me? And also, God, in the middle of this, I don't want to get a hard heart. I don't want to get a hard heart to you, and I don't want to get a hard heart to the people around me. Job literally lost everything and somehow kept a soft heart. But we read about this rich young ruler that encounters Jesus. And Jesus said, he came to Jesus and said, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. He didn't do it. We don't even know that guy's name. Even when we have a choice, it's hard to have a soft heart to God. So listen, there's no easy answers in this book of Job. But this morning, there's two groups of people that I'd like to pray for. 
The first is if you're going through suffering right now. We're going to pray. And the reason that we're going to pray is we're going to pray that God helps you get through it. And when somebody comes around you, sticks a hand around your shoulders, it reminds you that you're not going through this alone. And also, if you go, yeah, I feel like I'm in a period of some suffering right now, it also means that you're not keeping it to yourself and you're asking God for help and you're asking your church family for help. I wouldn't be here without my church family. Period. And especially in times of great suffering. We need each other. So in a moment, if that's you, we're going to pray. And we're going to stand with you and believe that God's going to get you through it. We're going to rebuke the devil. We're going to do everything we know to do. The second group is this. You've let your heart towards God grow hard because of suffering or maybe because you didn't get some easy answers or answers that you wanted to questions that you had and there's part of you that's shut down to God. And today you're going, God, I want a soft heart again. That's a tough spot. A lot of people leave church at that point. But if that's you, this is a moment when you start this process of going, God, soften this heart again. Why don't you stand with me? Uh, Prayer team, you guys can come up to the front.